Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Today, God's love for us comes alive, and it's all done in a riveting, biblically accurate manner with our guest, author Carl Gallups. We're exactly one week away from our prophecy conference in Anchorage, Alaska. Billy Crone and Larry Spargimino headline a special two-day prophecy conference Friday and Saturday, June 24th and 25th. Along with Billy Crone and Larry Spargimino, Greg Patton, Larry Stamm, and Micah Van Hus will all be there presenting the truth about the new America, the Jewish roots of Christianity, and the earth as it was. You don't want to miss this special conference June 24th and 25th in Anchorage, Alaska. Register today by calling 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or you can register at our website, swrc.com. Now, James Collins welcomes Carl Gallup's back to the program as they continue to explore the glimpses of glory. My guest again today is Pastor Carl Gallup's, the senior pastor of Hickory Hammock Baptist Church in Milton, Florida. He is also the best-selling author of Glimpses of Glory, which I think may be the best thing he's written. Satan wanted to stop the seed of the woman, so he attempted to corrupt human DNA through the sons of God in Genesis 6. So then we have a flood, and then you bring Noah into the story, and you do that after you have the Garden of Gethsemane. It doesn't move necessarily in chronological, biblical order. It's kind of back and forth in time. So would you pick up the story there with Noah? It's kind of like if you're watching a movie where it'll start off kind of almost at the end, and it's showing you something dramatic that's happening, and then boom, and then it says, 36 years earlier, and then it takes you all the way back to the beginning, and then it brings you all the way up through the story, right to that point again, and then beyond. And a lot of movies are written that way. So I wrote the book that way. And you're right, it starts off with Mary and Joseph looking at the little baby that's just been born, and they understand that they're a part of something huge, mm-hmm. and they just can't believe where they are. And then it moves from there right to the Garden of Gethsemane, like 33 years later. And so you're saying, oh, wow, man, I'm only in the first 30 pages of the book, and I'm already at the end of the story. <laughs> you know, he's getting ready to go to the cross. And then it takes him to the cross. But then on the cross, I have Jesus thinking back, basically, why he's here, because of what happened in the garden. And so then it goes Boom, all the way back to the garden. It moves right on up through history to the flood. And then you're in the Garden of Eden with Satan, Adam, and Eve, and what happened and the feeling of it all, the smell, everything. And then, you know, you go down through history, and boom, you're on the ark with Noah and his family. And it's not a children's bedtime story, brother. It's horrific. And they're in the midst of it, and you're on that ark with them, and you're in the midst of it. And then, of course, after that, it moves, it just kind of takes you in time. I have a little narrative section where I just talk about how it moves forward to Satan understanding that in the garden, God pronounced a death sentence on him. And he says, through the seed of a woman, a, a male child will crush your head, destroy your kingdom. And, and I just try to show how frustrating that was to Satan. He knew what he had done. He knew what was going to happen. He knew why it was going to happen. 
He knew how it was going to happen, but he didn't know when, he didn't know where, and he didn't know who it was. And what a more beautiful way for God from the beginning, Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundation, to have it worked out at the throne of God, kept top secret, even from the angels, even from the prophets, Peter writes. Angels longed to look into those things. The prophets knew they were writing for an age yet to come. They didn't know. Why? Because it was the most guarded secret in the universe of all the ages, was the exacting details of how God was going to bring this about. What a more beautiful way than to slip God in the flesh among humanity and to secretly, basically, deliver himself to the cross and to make Satan think that he was doing it to catch him in his own trap and then walk out of the grave alive and Satan realizes, oh my gosh, (laughs) I have messed up. I've lost. It's all (laughs) over. Yeah. Yeah, and so the womb of the woman. So what I do in the book is I show the readers that from the Garden of Eden, From that point forward to the New Testament when Jesus comes and goes to the cross and the resurrection and Satan realizes he's done for, the whole Bible is just basically covering the journey of God's people, basically starting in the Jewish people, but then anybody that believes, we're watching how Satan, all down through history, is desperately looking for this male child that's going to come from the womb of a woman, and he doesn't know. I mean, you know, there's millions of people, and then pretty soon there's billions of people on the planet. How's he going to find, how's he going to sort through billions of wombs to find the one, and how's he going to know if that's the one? And he's just driving him crazy. So then he eventually finds out when God tells Abraham, through your seed, the whole earth will be blessed. Satan puts two and two together and says, okay, it's going to come through the Hebrews. Well, guess what we discover? We watch the Hebrews taken into captivity. We watch them then eventually come under these wicked emperors, these pharaohs. Then we listen to the decree, kill all the male children of the Israelite slaves. What do you think that's about? That's Satan trying to, he thinks he's got them corralled up. He thinks he's got them herded up like cattle and slaves in Egypt. And now he's going to destroy every male child in case one of those is the deliverer. Keep going through the scriptures. You wind up in the Babylonian Empire. What is Nebuchadnezzar? He takes the male children and tries to convert them all to paganism or he kills them. The Persians take over. What do they do? Haman rises to the throne. And he says, just kill all the Jews. Kill all the Jews. And yet God uses a young woman by the name of Esther to stop that whole plot. Then we wind up in the first pages of the New Testament and the Christ child is born and the wise men come and they inquire. And Herod, who's filled with Satan, they figure out, okay, This thing has happened in Bethlehem. Go kill all the male children. Do you sense what I'm saying, James? Satan has been driving him crazy. And then Jesus shows up in the wilderness after John, the baptizer, has pronounced to the throngs, there's the lamb that's going to take away the sin of the world. Well, Satan's looking in his realm. Who's this interloper? Has he come from God's throne? Is he an angel? Is he, what is he? Is he the Messiah? Well, what does that mean? I mean, who is this guy? And so what does Satan do in the temptation? If you are the Son of God. And by the way, that Son of God doesn't necessarily have to mean Messiah. 
Satan would have known that because that's a title, B'nai Elohim. Satan used to be known as a B'nai Elohim, a son of God. In other words, from another realm, at the throne of God, a creation of God, a free will, free thinking, almost humanoid creation of the angelic realm. And so he's questioning, he's drilling and grilling Jesus, who's sitting there silent. He won't even answer Satan except with Scripture. And he keeps saying, well, throw yourself down from this pinnacle. Uh, Turn these stones into bread if you are the Son of God. The bottom line is, brother, we wind up all the way just before the cross hearing Jesus say that Satan has entered into Judas to betray him. To what? To the cross. Well, we now know that that was God's plan from the beginning, James. So... Yeah, you're right. I mean, that's the story. And a lot of today's Christians in the church, they just forget all of this, or they don't know it. They don't understand that the bigger picture is astounding, and we're living right in the middle of it. It's not some children's bedtime story stuff. The Bible's not a collection of myths and children's stories. It's the story of the life of humanity and this cosmic war that has been going on since the fall in the garden, and that we win if we belong to Jesus. This is James Collins, and you're listening to The Watchman on the Wall from Southwest Radio Ministries. My guest today is Pastor Carl Gallops, and we're talking about his very, very unique book, Glimpses of Glory. You can get a copy right now by calling 1-800-652-1144, or you can always order online at swrc.com. Again, Pastor Carl, I love how you kind of move the narrative along in the book and how you teach through the narrative. And in the story of Mary and Joseph, you bring out something that is, I think, very unique. I actually wrote about this in a book that I did called The Nativity a few years ago. But what I'd like for you to talk about is the significance of the Tower of the Flock. Yeah, Migdal Eder, yeah, in Hebrew. That was one of my favorite parts to write. Right. It was tedious, though as you can tell from reading it, that you're a writer, so you understand if you're going to write something like that, you better know something about what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're going to get into the narrative, people are going to read it, and they're going to say, this is stupid, this didn't happen, the Bible doesn't say this. And so if the Bible does say it, then you've got to get it in there without sounding like you're preaching or teaching while you're telling a novel-style story. So it was very tedious and difficult for me to write, but God helped me through it. But it wound up being my favorite part of the whole book because what I do is, is I take you to the little village of Nazareth and you get a real, not a children's bedtime story, but a real-life feel for what that was like for Mary and Joseph and growing up in a little community of maybe 100, 200 people and little villages scattered all in those Galilean hills. And then to wind up with the whole pregnancy thing and both of them are freaking out and Mary knowing what it was and then Joseph having to be convinced and by the angel. And then about that same time, you know, Caesar's issuing his decree. And so, you know, he's got to go register, but he's not going to leave Mary back behind. He may come home, she'll be dead because that was a death sentence for a young lady to have pregnancy out of wedlock in a little teeny village like that, almost cultic in the thickness of the religiosity in those Galilean hills and the little villages. And so she agrees to go. Now think about it, brother. We know from the scriptures, we know from history that the baby was born at about the time they arrived to Bethlehem. Well, the deal is that means she was on a donkey's back going a hundred and something miles over four, five, six days, maybe a week, depending upon the weather and, of course, her condition, 
nine months pregnant, brother, right, yeah. on a donkey, mm-hmm. going through the hills and valleys and ravines and the Jordan Road and the weather and then winding up down in Bethlehem. And they had to take kind of the long route. And I show that through the book because he's not going to take his wife through Samaria where the thieves are and the people that hate the Jews are. And here's his wife pregnant. So he takes the long way around. And they finally arrive. And the moment they're there, basically, she's ready to give birth. And so I just deal with what the scriptures say. And and I reveal some things that are pretty eye-opening. And apparently you've taught preached and wrote on this too so you're right so what i do is i show that micah 5 talks very clearly about you know Mm -hmm. out of you bethlehem will come the one that's from everlasting etc etc and you keep reading and it talks about the birth of the one that will come and there well we talk about well there was no room in the end well i tell you why because it wasn't that there necessarily wasn't any room there was no room for her why Because she's nine months pregnant. She's getting ready to give a baby. And these people are Jews. And Leviticus says that she will be unclean for a week after the baby. What motel keeper back in those days is going to bring an unclean woman who's going to give birth, screaming and hollering, driving everybody crazy. People are there for taxes. Then she's going to be laid up for a week. And everything that goes with it, and all the rituals that go with it. So it wasn't that there was no room necessarily. There was just no room for her. So... He put them out, and he says, you can't do this here. You can't stay here. So I have Joseph just remembering that at the edge of town on their way in through those shepherd's fields, which join into Bethlehem, and they go all the way basically to Jerusalem, which is only six miles away, and there are towers throughout those fields where the shepherds keep watch over their flocks, and they're called the Towers of the Flocks, but one of them is called the Tower of the Flock, Migdal Edar, and it's talked about in several places in the Old Testament, and it's connected with Bethlehem, and it's connected with where the angels appeared to the shepherds nearby that place. So I have what it is, it's a birthing room. It's a tower, but at the bottom of them, and there are still some of the ancient ones over there now. A good friend of mine that lives there in Israel, Zeph Pratt, who's born and raised there, speaks Hebrew as his first language. He's a messianic now, and he's been to all of these, and he's told me, he said, Carl, I've been to these places. I know this is true. He says, even the rabbis over here that are still looking for Messiah say that Messiah's going to come from Migdal Eder, the tower of the flock near Bethlehem. Why? Why do they say that? Why is Bethlehem called the city of David? And why is Jerusalem also called the city of David? Because they're only six miles apart. And in that day, David was born in Bethlehem, but then ruled and reigned from Jerusalem, six miles away. Well, guess what? Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and guess where he's going to rule and reign? From Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. Okay? So I have it in the book where Joseph is frantically looking for a place. His wife's getting ready to give birth. He doesn't want her to have birth in the middle of the street like a dog, but he remembers just about a half mile back when they came in, there's Migdal Eder, one of these towers, and in the bottom are these birthing rooms where they would take the sacrificial sheep because these sheep would give birth to these little lambs. The shepherds were what's called priestly shepherds. They were trained by the temple priests to handle those lambs in certain ways. They had to be wrapped in swaddling clothes, 
so that they wouldn't scar themselves or break their little legs because they were going to be brought back and forth once they were of the proper age to the temple every single day for the daily sacrifices. And particularly as it got close to Passover, they would need a lot of them. That's what these lambs were raised in Bethlehem for. And those shepherds out there were not just run-of-the-mill lowly shepherds. These were priestly shepherds trained by the priest and kosher shepherds. And so in Michael 5, it says he's born in Bethlehem, but Michael 4, one chapter before, says, and I'm going to have to paraphrase it, I don't have it in front of me, but it's in the book, and I've got the notes in the back that go to all the scholars, and they know it, archaeologists know it, scholars all the way back to the 1700s, they knew it, and it says in Michael 4, your king will come to you from Migdal Edar. Mm. That is where he will present himself. That is where you will see him. You will find him. And what is that? That's the tower of the flock. Where is it? Right at the edge of Bethlehem, right at the edge of the shepherd field. So when the shepherds are confronted with the angelic host, they tell him, unto you the child is born. He's given, rejoice this day, and you will find him wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in, and some translations have it dead right, the manger, and that word manger can mean a feeding trough, but it's also used in the wider form of a birthing room. You'll find him wrapped up like a little swaddling lamb in the birthing room, and then they don't even tell the shepherds where to go. They just say, unto you in the city of David, Bethlehem. And then it says immediately they went to the place where he was. How would they know where he was? Because the scripture said, when your Messiah comes, he will come at the tower of the flock. He will come at Migdal Eder. It says it in Micah 4. Then Micah 5 goes on to say, yep, in Bethlehem, this is where God's going to do it. The one who's from eternity will come there. But where? At the tower of of the flock. And so you live all of this through my book, and it's just such a natural flow. And then I've got the footnotes. You can go to the back. You can read all the stuff I've just said, and you can say, oh, why weren't we taught this in Sunday school? <laughs> the Lamb of God born in the very same place where the sacrificial lambs were born. Amazing, amazing. The book is amazing. It is Glimpses of Glory. My guest has been Pastor Carl Gallup's Pastor Carl, I wish I had more time to talk with you about the character named Baruch. I love that character and how you use him in the narrative. I love the scene where the Apostle John dies. That is a great example of multidimensional realities as John leaves this world and enters the next. Amazing, amazing book, and I uh, highly recommend it. Pastor Carl, I appreciate your ministry. I've followed it for years. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the program with me today. Get the complete two-day conversation with Carl Gallops on CD when you call 1-800-652-1144. And be sure to order your copy of Glimpses of Glory by Carl Gallops. Simply call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or order this book online, swrc.com. That's swrc.com. Happy early Father's Day to all the dads listening, and especially to my dad. Our host, Pastor Larry Spargermino, has a special message as we prepare to celebrate Father's Day this Sunday. Happy Father's Day. The family is the backbone of society. 
No society, no culture, no nation will long survive without successful families. One of the great tragedies of today is that there are so many in our culture who are trying to belittle, degrade, and destroy the traditional family. This Father's Day is especially significant because America is in the midst of a cultural crisis. And we see it in the rampant acts of violence, the increasing sense of fear, the drug addiction. We are in meltdown mode. What has happened to us? Well, we've forgotten the basics. What basics? Well, men are men. Women are women. And kids do well in the traditional family. Father's Day is a reminder of the traditional family, and I rejoice in this Father's Day. Yes, there are fathers, and there are mothers. There are men, and there are women. And out of their holy union comes our future leaders, our doctors, our scientists, our pastors, our teachers, our military personnel. The idea of father is very important. Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father, which art in heaven. Our heavenly Father is our Father, which art in heaven. I know some people claim the Bible is a sexist book, but listen, those people have some erroneous ideas that just don't work. Look at what's happening to our culture. The mess that our culture, and especially the American Republic, is in is a firm and undeniable rebuke to all those who mock God's Word. God will not be mocked. We as a society need to get back to reality. Some of my listeners may have heard the story, The Emperor's New Clothes. Two very dishonest men arrive in the capital city of an emperor who spends much money on lavish clothing. These two very dishonest men make believe they are weavers who make the finest clothing in the world. So they offer the emperor a supply of the world's best clothing. The clothing has an added feature. The clothing is invisible to people who are stupid and incompetent. So. The emperor hires them, and they set to work making the world's best clothing. Soon the emperor and his officials want to see how the project is coming along. The emperor and his officials notice that the looms are empty and no clothing has been made. But they pretend otherwise to avoid being thought to be incompetent fools. Finally, the weavers report that the emperor's suit is finished. They mime dressing him. The emperor can't wait to show all in his kingdom how beautiful his new clothing is. And so, the emperor is part of a huge processional going down the main street of the capital city. The citizens are uncomfortable but go along with the pretense, not wanting to appear stupid or incompetent, until a little child shouts out, The emperor has no clothes! The people realize that everyone has been fooled. I would hope that at some point, America would wake up and do something similar with our cancel culture. And fathers are an important part in bringing our culture back to reality, the reality that families are made of men and women and that there are only two genders. You may believe with the emperor that he really looks good in his expensive clothing, but the little child had it right. The emperor has no clothes. You see, a simple admission of truth is what we desperately need today, and that's where fathers come in. God has called fathers to be spiritual leaders in their homes. Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 4 tell us this, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may go well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. And ye fathers, 
provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. God told the Israelites that three times a year, all of the males were to appear together before him to receive instructions from him. Now, what I think is significant is that when the Lord told them to appear before him, the Lord identified himself with three special names, Adon, Yahweh, and Elohim. I want to read Exodus 34, verses 23 and 24. Thrice in the year shall all your men children appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out the nations before thee and enlarge thy borders. Neither shall any man desire thy land when thou shalt go up to appear before the Lord thy God thrice in the year. In using these three different names for himself, God emphasized his supreme authority over the men of the nation and their accountability to him. You know, friends, the same principle of divine leadership that applied to the Israelites is no different than God's leadership today. A godly father has an awesome responsibility, but God also promises divine leadership, protection, and wisdom for his work as husband and father. When a father functions today according to the principles and precepts of God's word, there will be order, authority, and an abundant provision. Yet when a father does not, as is true today, sadly speaking, he opens himself up and those connected to him to a life of frustration, chaos, and defeat. Did you know, friends, that roughly 70% of all prisoners come from fatherless homes? Approximately 80% of all rapists with anger problems come from fatherless homes. The statistics on fatherlessness outside of the prison population are just as alarming. 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. 63% of all teen suicides occur in homes where the father was either abusive or absent. In suburbia, many fathers have gone missing either through divorce, neglect, or overindulgence. Many fathers put their careers over their families where they love the golf course more than they love their kids. Fatherlessness, whether it comes through outright abandonment or through more subtle forms of abandonment, leaves similar scars on those affected by it. Virtually every adult social pathology has been linked to either fatherless homes or homes with a father and or a husband who was absent, abusive, or neglectful. Now, for many of us, these statistical realities seem impersonal and easy to ignore, but the effects of those statistics affect every one of us. On an average, taxpayers spend more than $8 billion annually on high school dropouts for public assistance programs such as food stamps. Teen pregnancies cost American taxpayers an average of $10 billion annually in public assistance, lost revenue, and increased health care costs. And with the prison population having nearly tripled from 1987 to 2007 to the highest per capita rate in the world, we now spend over $52 billion a year on prisons. Please, friends, pray for fathers, pray for homes, and happy Father's Day. In the Resource Center today, we have the book Glimpses of Glory by Carl Gallup's Tom Horn gives Glimpses of Glory a ringing endorsement when he said, quote, From the opening words to the last, 
Glimpses of Glory is like watching a riveting movie, absolutely engrossing, a stunning journey that will answer many questions and undoubtedly enhance your perspective of life and of God's Word." End quote. Order your copy of Glimpses of Glory today when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or order online, swrc.com. Have a wonderful weekend, a great Father's Day, and remember, God is still on the throne and prayer changes things. Watchman on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com.